Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Today, we will be talking about the microbiome with Dr. Sherry Gelber. Sherry, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So let's just jump right into it. Can you explain what exactly is the microbiome? Everyone's body is covered with bacteria. There are different bacteria in different parts of your body. You expect, like nobody is sterile. So if you do sampling of people, like if you look in their mouth, in their GI tract, in the vagina, because that's we're gynecologists, so that's what we care about, armpits, everyone will have bacteria everywhere. And when we talk about the microbiome, we're talking about which bacteria constitute normal or abnormal for a patient in any of those locations. So your bacteria aren't the same all over your body. You expect it to be different, different parts of your body. Mostly what people have is normal for them, but then certain changes in microbiota can be associated with different disease states. Right. So I mean, if you, if you were to go and sort of Google the microbiome, you'll find that, you know, alterations in your microbiome can cause anything, any disease known to mankind. And the thought is that on an adult level, for example, maybe taking antibiotics can change your microbiome because it kills off certain bacteria or maybe certain I don't know, antiseptic wipes or soaps or whatever could also change it. And this can lead to health consequences in adults. But in our field, what really, the way this comes up a lot is when babies are born, right? So the babies do live in a sterile or mostly sterile environment when they're inside in the uterus. And then when they're born, normally they would travel through the vagina, pick up the bacteria that's the the mother's microbiome that's in the vagina, and then begin to have their own microbiome. And then the thought process is that if there's an alteration in that, either because the mom is on antibiotics or the baby gets put in antibiotics, or more famously, if the baby's now born by cesarean delivery and instead of going through the vagina, it goes through the abdomen, through a sterile incision in the belly, the baby won't have the same microbiome that he or she would have gotten naturally. And somehow this is going to lead to various diseases in childhood and adulthood, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, whatever it might be, correct? Yes. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of concern that what happens in the first few minutes of life are going to negatively or positively impact health, but none of that has been demonstrated. And there are a lot of reasons why that might not be the case. So there's a big concern that the increase in cesarean rate is leading to an increase in childhood obesity. But it's also true that women who are overweight and obese are at increased risk to have children who are overweight and obese. And that women who are overweight are also at increased risk to require a cesarean delivery. And so it's possible that it's not the bacteria that the baby is acquiring through C-section that's leading to that obesity, but that it's either genetic factors or factors in the home or other things. And the microbiome is a very, very small piece of our overall health. Right. And I think that that touches on a lot of very important points. 
And the first is this idea in medicine between association and causation. And so a lot of times we'll say things in medicine are associated. And all that means that A and B are frequently seen together in the same person or at the same time or in the same family or in the same population. But the question is, does A cause B or vice versa, does B cause A? Or are they just uh, related in another way? And this is very complex to tease out. So there may be many studies that show that certain microbiomes are associated with certain outcomes. But the question is, did those outcomes come because of the microbiomes or did something else cause both? And the example you gave, I think, is a great one that if you can possibly show a study that says babies born by cesarean delivery are more likely to have diabetes in life or more likely to have childhood obesity or adult obesity. And number one, that itself is not always that easy to prove. But let's say you could show that that's really true. The question is why? And so one reason is that the cesarean delivery actually did something to the baby that caused he or she to have this later in life. And so one theory is the microbiome or the thing that caused the cesarean delivery is also the thing, quote unquote, causing what's going on in the baby. So like you said, a mother who's diabetic herself is more likely to have a cesarean delivery and more likely to have a baby who's diabetic. And so you may think it was the cesarean delivery that did it, but it actually wasn't. And it's very hard to tease that out in well-designed research, unless you sort of randomly divide women to have cesarean deliveries or vaginal deliveries, which isn't you know typically going to be done as a study because most people wouldn't sign up for that. Yes. Something like that would definitively be unethical. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I think people don't always appreciate that our microbiota is pretty resilient. Like there's certainly concern about unindicated antibiotic use and how that might change your microbiota. And certainly people take antibiotics and it can lead to drug resistant bacteria and it can cause problems. I think a classic thing for women is you take antibiotics and then you get a yeast infection because you're wiping out your microbiota. But there are pretty good examples of people having their microbiome tested as part of research studies and then they take antibiotics. And eventually, most of the time, your microbiota biota goes back to where it was to start. So even when we try and change things, the effects aren't usually long-lived. And in terms of the vaginal microbiome, there's good data that after some amount of time, the best predictor of a baby's microbiota is the parental microbiota. And it doesn't matter if the baby was born vaginally or by C-section. So it's really, the concern is about the immediate microbiota, not the long-term bacteria that are colonizing this child. Right, because after birth, the baby's going to have a tremendous amount of contact, physical contact with the parents, either just through being held, through living in the same you know, apartment or house, uh, nursing. I mean, all these things are going to definitely cause a lot of overlap in the microbiome between the baby and the parents. And like you said, it's really more so whether the moment of delivery, whether it has an impact long-term, and if so, what is that impact? Uh, and then on top of that, if there is an impact, what should we do about it? And that's where this idea of vaginal seeding came up as a potential, quote unquote, therapy or something to ameliorate the risks of a cesarean delivery on the microbiome. Do you want to explain what that is to our listeners if they haven't heard of it? Seeding is a colloquial term that's used to describe 
taking secretions from the mother's vagina around the time of birth. And usually they'll, people will put a piece of gauze in the vagina to sop up whatever fluids, bacteria are there. And then they wipe it on the baby, usually like all over the baby's skin. And the idea is you're going to be trying to colonize the baby with the bacteria that are in the mother's vagina as opposed to whatever the baby would otherwise get immediately colonized. Right. So like, um, mim so like almost, mimic almost mimicking mimicking a vaginal birth for babies that were not born vaginally. Yes. Right? So you wouldn't do this for a baby that was born vaginally, but just for a baby born by cesarean delivery. Yes. And so is anybody in the medical profession recommending this, or is this more of like a, a lay press thing that's out there? The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has been pretty clear that we should not be doing this for patients outside of well-designed research studies because there are risks of doing this, both known risks and unknown risks. And right now, there are no known benefits to this. All of the benefits are theoretic. No medical organizations are recommending this. Doctors should not be recommending this. But there has been a lot of enthusiasm in the lay press about this. Right. And we sometimes have people who ask us either about this or ask us to do this. And I say the same thing. I say, we really don't know whether it's a good thing, whether it's a bad thing, or whether it makes no difference whatsoever. And in a situation when we really don't know what something's going to do, the default tends to be not to do it because the idea of this do no harm, that you don't want to do something that could potentially cause problems. And like you said, some of the problems are maybe predictable, right? Taking bacteria and putting it in the baby's face or the baby's mouth or whatever it is. But there's other things we just don't know about, right? We don't know everything from everything. And to start doing procedures where we don't know the consequences of it is troubling. And so that's why we have research studies where we take a thousand women who are having a cesarean delivery and say to them, hey, listen, we, we don't know what this is going to do. It may be good. It may be bad. It may be neither. Here's our best guess of what's going to happen. And if you're willing to participate, we'll randomly divide you into two groups and 500 of you will do this to the baby and 500 we won't. And then we're going to check in on your babies in five years and see who has more obesity, who has more asthma. And if it's really different in the group that had the seating, then at least we can move forward and say, okay, we have some reason, reason to believe this is helpful. Or on the flip side, if we find out it doesn't do anything at all, at least we'll, as best as we can, answer that question. Randomized trial, like you're describing, is definitely the best way to get the research answer, like, will this be helpful? Will it prevent obesity? But the other thing you get from a trial is safety. So it's not that you're going to check in in five years. Babies that are enrolled in trials like this are getting more frequent follow-up because one of the big concerns about taking vaginal secretions and putting them on a baby is that there are things in the maternal microbiome that are good, but there also might be things that are harmful, things like group B strep, E. coli, herpes, like people can be shedding these things without like shedding something like herpes without actually knowing they even have it. Things like group E strep and E. coli can cause sepsis, can cause serious illness in babies. And so when you're doing a study like this, people are getting followed much more closely, not just for what we call efficacy, like is the study doing what we want, but for safety. And when people are doing this on their own, there's really nobody checking in to make sure that 
no harm has been done. Right. Thank you for clarifying that because that is that is a critical point. And you know, obviously, you wouldn't just like say, hey, come back in five years. And part of the safety is not something that just happens randomly. I mean, it's very structured, meaning every baby has to come back at X amount of time and you have to do certain tests. And what do you do if you find something? And it has to be reported. And there's something called the data safety like a safety monitoring board, because again, in a very well-designed study, other than the person who did the vaginal seating on the baby, no one else knows which baby got which, right? So in a, in a really well-designed study, let's say the pediatrician who's examining the, the baby would not know if he or she got that because then they wouldn't be biased towards thinking A or C, A or B. And so you have this very regimented way of doing it. So you need someone overseeing it saying, okay, we've heard of 10 complications. If we've heard that all 10 are in babies that we know are in the seating group, that's very different than if it's five in each group, in which case you would say, okay, this is, you know, whatever, there's complications that can happen to anybody. And that's a very important thing that really can only happen at least in a structured way if you go through a proper trial. That is the reason that we don't recommend vaginal seating to our own patients. We have had people do it on their own, either when they get home in their hospital room and you know, ultimately every parent decides for themselves what's best for them and their baby. And, you know, we don't, you know, we don't police it, but we certainly don't recommend it and we wouldn't do it. And that's pretty typical recommendations, like you said, for at least the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and other professional organizations that have comment on this. They tend to be very hesitant to do anything unless it's, unless we've studied it first. One of the things that gets lost in the mix is that when a baby is born vaginally, like it is acquiring that microbiome, it's swallowing fluid, all of these things are happening, but also the baby is coated in amniotic fluid, which is actually bacteriostatic. So bacteria don't grow in amniotic fluid. And as they're coming out, like babies have vernix, they have stuff on their skin, and that's protecting them. And that will, some of that will come off in the process of birth. And so the way the baby is being colonized is complicated because there's this combination of maternal things and vernix and amniotic fluid. And that's very different than taking a load of bacteria from the mother's vagina and putting it directly on the skin after the fact. And the data that's available shows that Babies that have undergone seeding have microbiota that's not the same as a C-section, but also not the same as from a vaginal delivery. It's somewhere in between. And I don't know of any data that really shows anything in terms of numbers of bacteria. So it could be that the way you acquire bacteria during the process of a vaginal birth, you know, the numbers might be lower than when you're deliberately applying these bacteria to the baby. Right. And when when I have women who ask me about the microbiome, what I typically discuss with them is that it does exist, right? There is a microbiome. That's pretty clear. And it seems to have some correlation with certain health outcomes. But since we really don't know exactly how important it is and for what things and you know exactly what is the downside and the upside, generally the right thing to do is if a vaginal delivery is the safe, appropriate thing to do, have a vaginal delivery. And if it's not, and you should have a cesarean delivery, then you should have a cesarean delivery. And is it possible that the microbiome will have a consequence later in life? Of course, it's possible. But the last thing you want to do is avoid something that's important and known to be helpful to counteract a sort of hypothetical risk 
10 years down the road. And so without further research, I would not alter any decisions about delivery based on the possibility of the microbiome. And the same thing with antibiotics. If someone does not need antibiotics, sure, they shouldn't take them because there's a potential for downside and there's no upside. But if someone has something that requires antibiotics, they should take them, right? They're life-saving. Absolutely. All right. Well, this was a great conversation about the microbiome. Thank you to Dr. Sherry Gelber for coming to discuss it with us. And thank you for listening uh, to Healthful Woman. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.